Hello, hello, hello. This is Monica, and this is Remembering the Misremembered. I'm going to get right into it because this is a very big story. Uh, Jesse Belvin was a gifted pianist, singer, and songwriter. He was handsome, beyond cool, and he possessed a charisma that was unparalleled. Sam Cooke, Marvin Gaye, and Stevie Wonder all looked up to him. Etta James was in love with Jesse and said that he was the most gifted artist of her generation. He was on the way to being a serious threat to Nat King Cole, Johnny Mathis, Billy Eckstein, even Frank Sinatra. He was called Mr. Easy because of his smooth style and the ease with which he wrote songs. He also easily flowed from rhythm and blues to rock and roll and crooning. He was born Jesse Lorenzo Belvin in San Antonio, Texas on December 15, 1932. He moved with his family to Vallejo, California as a toddler, and by the time Jesse was five, they settled in Los Angeles. By age seven, Jesse was singing in church. He attended Jefferson High School, which at different times had students such as Alvin Ailey, Roy Ayers, Dorothy Dandridge, Etta James, and Johnny Guitar Watson, to name a few. In his early teens, Jesse Belvin was singing R&B and jazz as a member of Big J McNeely's backing vocal quartet, Three Dots and a Dash. He recorded his debut release, All That Wine Is Gone, which caused a major buzz. Jesse got billing under McNeely's on the B-side, Sad Story. In 1952, Jesse and his bandmate Marvin Phillips signed to Specialty Records, and they cut four singles. The first three were Baby Don't Go, One Little Blessing, and Love of My Life, which were credited to Jesse, and they went nowhere. Dream Girl was credited to Jesse and Marvin, and featured Jesse on piano and vocals, and Marvin on saxophone. This song made it to number two on the R&B charts in 1953. Jesse was soon drafted into the military, while he was home on leave, he wrote a song called Earth Angel, a song that was supposedly inspired by a white neighbor of his. Jesse wrote a lot of songs under a lot of names and sold them for cheap because he needed money. He might sell a song for as little as $100, but in the case of Earth Angel, Jesse wrote this song using the piano in his mother's house. Jesse's family home had the only piano in the neighborhood, and his mother would allow his friends to use it. One friend was sitting at the piano when he saw the music related to Earth Angel. The song ended up being recorded by a doo-wop group known as The Penguins. A massive hit, it became one of the first R&B hits to cross over to the pop charts. It sold a million copies between the end of 1954 and the beginning of 1955, and was placed at the center of a lawsuit over who actually wrote the song. It took two years to be resolved. When it was all said and done, Jesse Belvin ended up with a third of the credit for composing this groundbreaking tune, and he would receive the royalties for the song over the years. In 1956, he signed to Modern Records, which didn't stop him from recording for other labels using other names. Some of his recordings for Modern gave credit to the clicks when it was really Jesse and Eugene Church, although most were just Jesse singing by himself. But Jesse's way of taking care of business was confusing because of his association with so many groups, so many labels, and so many songs. The song Goodnight My Love 
was written by George Matola, but it was unfinished. Years later, Jesse wrote the song's bridge and agreed to receive a quick $400 in exchange for co-writing credit. Good Night My Love made it to number seven on the R&B chart. There are claims that future superstar Barry White, who was just 11 years old at the time, played piano on this recording. White denied this claim. Maybe it was another Barry White. I don't know. But what we do know is that rock and roll personality and DJ Alan Freed used the song as the outro for his wildly popular radio show, which meant that it was heard by millions of people. George Matola put together a group called The Shield, which included guitarist Jesse, Frank Irvin, and Johnny Guitar Watson. Their only release was a song called You Cheated. A white group called The Slates were the first to record it, but surprisingly, The Shields had the more successful rendition. It hit number 15 on the pop chart in the summer of 1958. Jesse's career was indeed on the upswing. He had an important secret weapon, his wife, Joanne Johnson Belvin. Joanne actually wrote his song, Beware, and they wrote songs together like Guess Who? I don't know how she did it, but Joanne learned the business and took on the official job of manager for her husband, which was pretty much unheard of. The young couple were on their way to becoming a serious power couple, and I'm sure the diabolical powers that be were none too pleased. You were supposed to sing for them and make money for them, not look like you might be outsmarting them or beating them at their game. The savvy Joanne got Jesse out of his other contracts and negotiated a deal with RCA Victor, the label that Elvis Presley recorded for. This deal included movie deals and it also meant acting as Elvis's vocal coach. Jesse Belvin was one of the first people to ever be nominated for a Grammy when they first started handing out the gold gramophone in 1959. He was nominated for two awards actually, Best Male Vocal Performance, losing to Frank Sinatra, and Best Rhythm and Blues Performance, losing to Dinah Washington. Both of these no nominations were for Guess Who, the song that he and Joanne wrote together. Of course, racism and segregation were major issues, but in the American South, it was particularly worrisome. Jesse had just signed this lucrative contract with RCA Victor, so he would need to hit the road in order to promote his music. He had to tour. Touring in the South would be dangerous for the aforementioned reasons as well as the connection to Elvis. Jesse was being billed as the Black Elvis. Keep in mind, Jesse was helping Elvis to improve as a singer, not the other way around. The label was trying to make Jesse the Black Elvis and the young Nat King Cole. Jesse, meanwhile, was worried about alienating his Black fan base, the ones who had supported him from the very beginning. He was set to join Mr. Excitement himself, Jackie Wilson, Arthur Prysock, and about five other acts in Little Rock, Arkansas for a one-nighter at the Robinson Auditorium. Some versions of this story say that Sam Cooke was on the bill, but according to the flyer for the concert, Sam Cooke was not featured. Arthur Prysock was the other major act. This was not the Chitlin Circuit. What it was was the first integrated concert in Little Rock, bringing together audiences of black and white, mostly teenage patrons. I believe that it was the first concert with a mixed-race audience in the history of the state of Arkansas. And Arkansas was known particularly for its racism. This was where the Little Rock Nine situation took place. Look into what happened with their school integration efforts there if you're not aware. 
But Mr. Easy was quite uneasy about performing in the Deep South. He started receiving death threats in the days leading up to the February 5th, 1960 concert. I would think all of the acts were receiving these threats, but Jesse was so shook up that he called his mother back home in L.A. to relay his fears. That was not like him. He wasn't normally the fearful type. At the actual show, there were white racists in the audience disrupting the show. They were yelling out their threats from the audience, calling the performers all kinds of N-words, and telling the white teenage patrons to leave. They claimed there was supposed to be an all-white dance there. There was also a mini-race riot in the audience between both black and white patrons against the white racists, causing the show to be stopped a couple of times. They say that Jackie Wilson refused to do the second show, either because it was too dangerous or in protest. This caused trouble between Jackie, the promoter, and the police. Allegedly, the tires on Jesse's car, Jackie's car, and Arthur Prysock's car were slashed. At least five young white men were seen around the cars. Two of the men were blocking the view of the cars. One of these guys was spotted under one of the cars. What was he doing? The promoters were angry because all of the performers refused to do the second show. They were ordered <clears throat> out of town, purportedly on slashed tires. Some accounts say they were ordered to leave town at gunpoint. The next stop on this tour was to be the state of Jesse's birth, Texas. The venue was in Dallas, and they had threats ahead of them there as well. But they soldiered on, following each other out of town with Jesse, with Jackie Wilson's car leading the way. Now at this point of the story, we need to talk about the driver of Jesse Bellman's car. His name was Charles. Charles was employed by singer Ray Charles sometime in 1959, but Ray had to fire Charles after a very short time because Charles was irresponsible. He had a tendency to carouse and drink and do things that caused him to drive unsafely. After Charles lost his job with Ray Charles, he was hired by Jesse Belvin. There's also a story that Jackie Wilson had a car waiting for Jesse Belvin at the next stop in Dallas. Maybe it was because of the slashed tires, but anyway, the party headed towards Dallas, like I said, with Jackie's car leading the way. The second car was carrying Charles, the driver, Jesse and Joanne, Jesse's guitarist Kirk Davis, with the other acts in the third car. So they're riding along when the occupants of the third car noticed Jesse's car was driving crazy and swerving all over the highway. Jackie Wilson is way in front and oblivious to this. Thinking that Charles has fallen asleep, the third car occupants start flashing their headlights and honking the horn in a desperate attempt to wake him up. I don't know if they were aware of Charles's reputation or if they just figured out that he must have dozed off at the wheel. Then Charles apparently woke up or whatever because the car began to ride properly again. But then the erratic driving started again with Charles veering off into the opposite lane and colliding with an oncoming car. Those who were in the third car saw the sky light up, a huge ball of fire, an explosion. They pulled over and went over to the car. What they found was absolutely horrifying. They would never forget it. The impact of this crash sent Mr. Easy, Jesse Belvin, sailing violently through the windshield, his clothes ripped to shreds, his head barely hanging onto his body. Jesse's handsome face was no more. It was all cut up with a detached nose. Charles also died on impact. Kirk Davis was still alive but not expected to make it. 
Apparently, Jesse was asleep but woke up shortly before impact and had the presence of mind and the time to attempt to save Joanne's life by stuffing her under the radio where she was found alive but in bad, bad shape. Her chest and pelvis were crushed, and she had a compound fracture of the left femur. There are stories that the hospital wouldn't treat Joanne because, one, she was black, and two, she had no money for admission. Jackie Wilson had no idea what had happened. This is before a cell phone, so he made it all the way to Dallas. He, for some reason, expected the Belvin party to arrive ahead of him. When they weren't at the designated spot, Jackie called Jesse's mother and asked if she had heard from Jesse, which she had not. Somehow, Jackie was contacted and told of the tragic situation. Jesse had been killed, and Joanne was badly injured and needed money so that the hospital could treat her. Mr. Excitement, who we've heard terrible stories about, rose to the occasion in this situation. He got in his car and turned around, heading right back to Hope, Arkansas, the hometown of the future 42nd president of the United States of America, Bill Slick Willie Clinton. He got back with the money that was needed. Joanne, who had been left untreated for a number of hours, was put in a medically induced coma. Her father flew in, and I think Joanne was in and out of consciousness by the time her father got there. Now, it was her father who broke the news to his daughter that her husband, Jesse, did not survive the accident. I think Joanne lost the will to live then. She succumbed to her injuries four days after the accident on February 10, 1960. Whenever I hear this story, it's always reported that Joanne was 25. But she was actually just 23 years old at the time of her death. Her dates, you know, obviously they're on the death certificate and on her tombstone. And if you do the math, she was 23. She was such a remarkable young lady. Jesse was 27, and he is believed to be the first singer of the rock and roll era to die at that age. So he is one of the founding members of the infamous cultural phenomenon known as the 27 Club. The couple in the other car died also. The only person to survive this tragedy was Kirk Davis, the guitarist. But I don't know if he was ever interviewed about it. There seemed to be an immediate cover-up of the facts, and there are no pictures you know, from the scene. Jackie Wilson initially blamed Charles for the accident because he was known to drink and fall asleep at the wheel. But upon further inspection, he joined the chorus that believed foul play was involved. Jackie had his lawyer looking into it, but I don't know what he found out. There were the alleged slash tires, the possibility that somebody tampered with the brakes, the possibility of a bomb being put in the car. Yes, Charles was erratic, but there were also those guys who were, st- who were seen messing with the car. The possibilities of what really happened are pretty endless. Jesse and Joanne had a joint funeral and are buried together at Los Angeles' Evergreen Cemetery. They left behind two baby boys who Jesse's mother took charge of. Jesse Belvin didn't live to fulfill the promise of superstardom that it seemed guaranteed to him, and he and his wife didn't get to become the power couple that they seemed destined to become. Jeanette Baker, a niece of legendary entertainer Josephine Baker, tried to get Jesse and Joanne into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Part of the eligibility rules is having an album. Jesse fits that criteria, but Joanne does not. She wrote Beware for Jesse, and they wrote Guess Who together. So Jesse fits the criteria, but his influence isn't really felt in this day and age. And Joanne didn't get to become the mogul that she was on her way to becoming. I mean, Barry Gordy, Ahmet Erdogan, and others are in the Hall of Fame for their contributions 
behind the scenes. With more time and more accomplishments, she surely would have made it. Jesse and Joanne Belvin were truly ahead of their time. We hear that about a lot of people, but that term really does fit them. It's really sad, but Joanne was such an astute businesswoman. She made sure that her kids were set up financially by receiving royalties from their dad's music. Jesse Belvin Jr., a singer himself, has spent years investigating the truth behind his parents' deaths. He said that their deaths might be tied to the song Earth Angel. I don't know if he's referring to it supposedly being written for a white woman, if there was some kind of fallout from Jesse getting a third of the credit for writing it, or if he's referring to something else entirely. Was the car crash an accident, or was foul play involved? Was Charles the driver drunk or otherwise impaired? Like, did one of those angry racists spike his drink somehow, or was he just naturally sleepy at the time of the accident? Were the tires really slashed? Were the brakes tampered with? Was a bomb put in the motor? Was it more than one of these variables? Will we ever know? We know that we were all cheated in this situation. Jesse's album, Mr. Easy, was released posthumously, and it's an easy listen. Anyway, I know this was a lot, but um, I'm Monica. This is Remembered, Remembering the Misremembered, and I shall see you soon.